Welcome back to The Shaping of the Modern World. I'm Stephen Remy. I'm a professor of history at Brooklyn College of the City University of New York. This series supports my course, History 1101, The Shaping of the Modern World. This is Episode 3, Slaves, Sugar, and More Slaves. Today we begin about 100 meters off the coast of Cape Town in South Africa, and a few dozen meters underwater, and we'll end in a prison cell in Virginia in the United States. In 2013, a group of explorers made a remarkable discovery. The remains of a slave ship that wrecked in the treacherous waters just off Cape Town in 1794. The ship was the Chalzoje Paquette de Africa, a Portuguese slave ship sailing from what is today Mozambique with a cargo of more than 400 enslaved people. Its destination was Portugal's massive colony in South America, Brazil. On December 27, while attempting to sail around the tip of South Africa off the city of Cape Town, the São José hit submerged rocks and wrecked only 100 meters from shore. The captain crew and about half of the enslaved people managed to get ashore. The rest of the Mozambicans died. The surviving slaves were resold. Almost 200 years later, in the 1980s, divers discovered the remains of the wreck, but they mistook it for another vessel. In 2010 and 2011, researchers working for the Shipwrecks Project found an account of the wreck by the São José's captain in a South African archive. They compared this account with what the divers in the 1980s had discovered. Then they did some excavating at the site and found material evidence that the wreck was in fact the São José. One key piece of evidence was iron ballast bars. See the accompanying PowerPoint presentation. Ballast bars were used to weigh down and stabilize ships and were common on slave ships like the São José. A full-scale excavation of the site began in 2013. Some of the recovered artifacts were loaned to the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C. for display to the public. The discovery was important for a number of reasons. It provides evidence of the expansion of the transatlantic slave trade to East Africa. As you can see from the map on the PowerPoint, the vast majority of African slaves were taken from West Africa, but the slave trade extended into East Africa and the São José was part of this expansion. Also, the São José is the first wreck of a slave ship that is known to be carrying slaves that has ever been discovered. You can watch a short video on the excavation by following the link in the assignment guide. The São José was just one of thousands of slave ships that transported around 12 million Africans across the Atlantic Ocean, mostly to the Western Hemisphere, during the period of the transatlantic slave trade. In this episode, I'll talk about the trade in African slaves as it emerged in the context of the Colombian Exchange, and I'll talk about some of the ways in which we live with the legacies of slavery today. Like empires, various forms of coerced labor were nothing new to the world of the 1500s to the 1800s. Slavery and slave trading had long been widespread in Europe, Africa, and the Indian Ocean region. But one particular form, heredity, hereditary 
chattel slavery became central to the new transatlantic world of empires and hence central not only to the first globalization, but to the development of modern capitalism. The transatlantic slave trade was unique in world history because of its scale, its brutality, the way it altered the human geography of Africa and the Americas, and because of its economic significance. What's more, we are living with the legacies of all these things today. You already know that in the 1500s, the first truly globalized system of trade came into existence with the creation and expansion of Eurasian empires and European conquests in the Western Hemisphere. All kinds of commodities were traded in this new globalized system, but a few became the most valuable. You already know that silver was one. Another crucial commodity was sugar. If we go back to the late 1400s, we see that sugar is an exotic commodity, a luxury item for most people everywhere, especially in places where it cannot be grown, which is most places. Growing sugarcane requires tropical temperatures and lots of rain. It cannot be cultivated in Europe. Before the 1500s, Europeans who wanted sugar had to import it from Arab regions, and this was very expensive. It was Christopher Columbus who realized the Caribbean's potential as a sugar-producing region. Well, everyone knows the date 1492, the year he reached the Caribbean, but just as important, if not more important, was the following year, 1493, the year Columbus came back to the Caribbean with sugarcane stalks taken from the Spanish Canary Islands. For thousands of years, most sugarcane cultivation was local. The challenge facing Europeans in the Western Hemisphere was this. How do you produce enough sugar to make trade in it profitable? Cultivating sugarcane and processing the sugar is very difficult. You had to cut the cane by hand, then grind it immediately to get the juice inside or it would spoil in a day or two. Then you had to boil the liquid to produce crystals and molasses. This requires intensive labor and Europeans did not want to do this kind of labor. So one solution was coerced labor from indigenous peoples, but most of them perished in the aftermath of contact with Europeans. You can see where this is going. But you needed even more than control of lots of territory in the right climate and lots of cheap labor. You needed a system for high volume cultivation and production and a means of controlling the labor force. Here, the Portuguese were the pioneers in developing the modern plantation system. When Portuguese sailors began exploring the western coast of Africa, they seized islands off the coast in the Atlantic Ocean. On these islands, they cut down tropical forests and built sugar plantations. First, they enslaved native peoples, who died out. The source of labor was replaced by enslaved Africans. So here was the model that would be, would be replicated on a far greater scale in the Western Hemisphere by the Portuguese, the Spanish, the French, the English, and eventually in the United States of America. The sugar plantation system fed a seemingly insatiable demand for sugar in Europe. The demand became so great that by the 1700s, a handful of small Caribbean islands that produced sugar with slave labor became the world's most valuable real estate. 
European colonists and Europeans demanded more and more sugar, mainly as a sweetener and also to make rum. The demand only increased as Europeans consumed more tea, coffee, and chocolate. By the late 19th century, Western societies had developed the custom of ending meals with foods sweetened with sugar, that is, dessert. Sugar eventually became the largest single import in Great Britain. Between 1700 and 1800, English consumption of raw sugar grew from about four pounds per person per year to 20, roughly 10 times as much as that consumed by an average French person. So how did the transatlantic slave trade operate? In the PowerPoint, you'll see a French painting from the 18th century, which captures the basic functioning of the slave trade from a European perspective. It involved three parties, Africans who would become slaves, Africans who captured and traded in slaves, and European slave traders. But the trade also required a physical infrastructure. On the slides are images of the Gold Coast Castle, one of many slave trading forts built along the coast of what is today the nation of Ghana. In the mid-17th century, a Swedish merchant obtained permission from a local ruler to build a trading port on the coast. Within a few years, the British took control of it. It was rebuilt in the mid-18th century. Among the additions was a large underground dungeon that could hold around 1,000 enslaved people awaiting transport across the Atlantic. They exited the dungeon through what became known as the Door of No Return. The Gold Coast Castle was only one of about 30 such forts built on the so-called Gold Coast of West Africa. The French painting depicted slave trading in Goree off the coast of Dakar in Senegal. Goree was one of the slave trade ports established by the Portuguese around 1450. Like other such ports and territories in Africa, it was controlled by various European states until the French seized it in 1677. The transatlantic slave trade and the plantation systems it made possible permanently altered the physical and human geography of Africa and much of the Western Hemisphere. It made substantial parts of Africa and millions of Africans and their descendants part of the wider, interconnected Atlantic world. The slave trade and slavery was critical to the development of modern capitalism and the Industrial Revolution that began in Britain in the 1700s. Britain transported 3.2 million enslaved people, the majority to the Caribbean, to work on sugarcane plantations. Historians estimate that 12.5% died during transport and another 20-25% to died within the first three years of arrival. This slave labor generated enormous wealth for white British landowners on two Caribbean islands in particular, Barbados and Jamaica. Consider this statistic. By the 1770s, the nominal wealth of an average white person was 42 British pounds in England and 60 in North America. In Jamaica, it was 2,200. But white landowners didn't keep this wealth in the Caribbean. It flowed into Britain and the profits generated by the sugar trade and by the growing of cheap cotton by enslaved people transformed the economy making the Industrial Revolution possible and making Britain the world's first truly 
global superpower. The sugar trade also contributed to the growing wealth of North American port cities like New York, Boston, and Philadelphia. The brutality of the slave trade and slavery would be impossible to overstate. Those who survived the Middle Passage and their descendants endured almost unimaginable suffering. And it's important to remember that slaves were not passive. There were far more slave revolts than most people realize. Many people are familiar with Nat Turner's revolt in 1831. Turner was an enslaved preacher who led a four-day-long rebellion by enslaved and free black people in Virginia in August 1831. The most famous and successful slave revolt took place in 1791 in what would become the Republic of Haiti, which I'll talk about in a future episode. And slaves engaged in forms of resistance other than armed rebellion, like escape or learning how to read or work slowdowns. In the 18th and 19th centuries, an international movement to abolish the slave trade and slavery developed in England and the U.S., but it's important to remember that slaves were the most important abolitionists. In the United States, a civil war was fought between 1861 and 1865 over slavery. The war ended slavery as an institution but its legacies remain woven deeply into the political, economic, legal, social, and cultural fabric of the United States. As an example of these connections, let's go back to sugar. Sugar is big business in the U.S. today. The U.S. is the world's sixth largest sugar producer, about 9 million tons annually. The sugar industry receives about $4 billion in annual subsidies which you pay for. So that's price supports, guaranteed crop loans, tariffs, restrictions on foreign imports. The state of Louisiana is the heart of American sugar production. The sugar cane industry there is worth around $3 billion and provides an estimated 16,400 jobs. Louisiana's and the country's largest refinery is on the Mississippi River outside New Orleans. This is the Domino Sugars Chalmette Refinery. In operating season, it produces 120 bags of sugar per minute, 24-7. Americans can't seem to get enough of the stuff, despite the fact that it's killing us. Americans consume as much as 77.1 pounds of sugar and sweeteners per person per year. The vast majority of edible items sold in an average American grocery store contain sugar of some kind. The American sugar industry today is rooted in the slave sugar plantation system. And, though the North's victory in the Civil War and the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution ended slavery, other systems of coerced labor for black Americans persisted in the South. So it was possible, but very difficult, for black farmers to own their own sugar cane farms. White plantation owners continued to control most land ownership and freed men and women often had no choice but to live and work on plantations. Sometimes it was possible for collective action by black workers to strike for higher pay and better conditions and even sometimes win, but collective action like this could also be extremely dangerous. During one collective action in Louisiana in 1887, at least 30 black people were murdered in their homes and in public. Some estimates go into the 100s. 
exploitative and illegal labor practices in refineries and on farms continued well into the late 20th century. And Louisiana is also home to the Angola Prison Complex. Angola was built on former slave plantations. Now the entire complex is the largest maximum security prison by landmass in the United States. It is larger than Manhattan. What is the connection between Angola and sugar? To this day, inmates at Angola, along with prison staff, farm sugarcane and produce sugar, some of which is sold at the Angola Museum gift shop. South of Angola, near New Orleans, there is also a remarkable new historical project, the only sugar slavery plantation museum in the country, the Whitney Plantation Museum. The plantation itself operated continuously from 1752 to 1975. 16 original structures survive, including the main house and two slave cabins. Today, museum staff is comprised almost entirely of African-American women, and a third of them have close relatives who worked there or who were born there in the 1960s and 1970s. I've taken the story of the connections between slavery and the contemporary American sugar industry from one of the contributions to the New York Times 1619 project. You've probably heard of it. The project was the brainchild of the reporter Nicole Hannah-Jones. She chose the occasion of the 400th anniversary of the arrival of the White Lion in Jamestown, Virginia in August 1619. The White Lion carried between 30 and 40 enslaved Africans. Hannah Jones argues that this was the true foundational moment for what would become the United States. Foundational, because slavery was foundational to the establishment of the Republic. It was also the central cause of the Civil War that nearly destroyed it. But there's more. We are still living every day with the legacies of that moment. The 1619 Project has its critics, including some historians. In December 2019, the Times published a letter written by a group of prominent American historians that challenged the factual accuracy of some of the claims in the series. You can read the response on the project's website. I've been focusing on slavery's legacies in only one country, the U.S. But the questions we ask about the legacies of slavery raise some very big questions that could apply anywhere. What role does the past play in our lives right now? How should any community or society deal with a difficult past? On the one hand, you could argue that lying about or covering up a painful past is morally problematic and corrosive to social harmony. On the other, you could argue that instead of promoting reconciliation and unity, constantly talking about past wrongs only perpetuates grievances and deepens mutual hostilities. And how should any society teach children about a very difficult past? You'll see that Brian Stevenson's contribution to the 1619 Project connects the legacy of slavery with mass incarceration in the United States today. You may know the name Brian Stevenson. He's a lawyer and an activist and the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative, or the EJI. Stevenson founded the EJI in 1989, and here I'm quoting its website. 
The EJI provides legal representation to people who have been illegally convicted, unfairly sentenced, or abused in state jails and prisons. We challenge the death penalty and excessive punishment, and we provide re-entry assistance to formerly incarcerated people. Stevenson and his staff have won reversals, relief, or release from prison for over 135 wrongly condemned prisoners on death row and won relief for hundreds of others wrongly convicted or unfairly sentenced. Stevenson published a best-selling memoir of his early years as a lawyer representing death row inmates who insisted they had been wrongly convicted. One of the EJI's projects the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, opened in April 2018. It's both a museum and a memorial to slavery and its legacies, to lynching and also to mass incarceration. Stevenson gives you figures about mass incarceration that have become very well known in recent years. The U.S. has the highest rate of incarceration in the world. The country has 4% of the world's population, but 22% of those in prison. There are now around 2.2 million Americans in American prisons, with another 4.5 million on parole or probation. And prison populations are disproportionately non-white relative to the size of non-white populations in the U.S. Stevenson points out a critically important fact about the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, namely, that it made an exception for people convicted of crimes. They could be forced into involuntary servitude. During and after the period of the Black Codes, there has been a seemingly insatiable appetite for controlling and punishing Black Americans as targets of police, harassment, verbal and physical abuse, false arrests, and the use of excessive, sometimes deadly force in response to minimal or non-existent threats it is also a demonstrable fact that there is a racial imbalance in sentencing for minor and major offenses. Stevenson notes that even in schools, black children are suspended and expelled at rates that vastly exceed the punishment of white children for the same behavior. Kevin Rashid Johnson is even more blunt about slavery and its connection to mass incarceration. In the assignment guide, I posted a link to an article he wrote for the British newspaper The Guardian. Kevin Rashid Johnson is a co-founder of the new African Black Panther Party and is currently serving a life sentence in Virginia. He was convicted in 1990 and has been imprisoned ever since. He maintains he is innocent. In the summer of 2018, prison inmates in the U.S. and Canada staged strikes to demand, among other things, an end to compulsory labor for next to no money. The strike was coordinated by a group called Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, a group of prisoners providing mutual help and legal training to other inmates. Kevin Rashid Johnson has refused repeatedly to perform labor as a prisoner. He does this as a form of protest. So I'll end this episode by giving him the last word with a quote from Johnson explaining and justifying his protest. And here I'm quoting Kevin Rashi Johnson. I see prison labor as slave labor that still exists in the United States in 2018. In fact, slavery never ended in this country. 
At the end of the Civil War in 1865, the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution was introduced. Under its terms, slavery was not abolished. It was merely reformed. Anybody convicted of a crime after 1865 could be leased out by the state to private corporations who would extract their labor for little or no pay. In some ways, that created worse conditions than under the days of slavery, as private corporations were under no obligation to care for their forced laborers. They provided no health care, nutritious food, or clothing to the individuals they were exploiting. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be well and take care of each other.